All right, we're here with Quentin Palfrey, who, hey, this is the first time uh, we've had someone for the new podcast here um, in <laughs> my basement. That's fantastic. <laughs> this is this is grassroots politics at its best uh, right here. So, uh, so Quentin, uh, it's great to have you. Man. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's nice to be back in Pittsfield. It, it's great to have you here, you know, uh, great energy. And, um, you know, the last time we spoke, uh, it was, uh, gosh, four years ago. Um, and we were talking before the show how it's kind of like a situation where it was, feels like yesterday uh, in a lot of ways. And it's like almost time has stood still in a lot of ways. But then, of course, everything has changed uh, since then uh, through the pandemic and, and the rest. But you were running for lieutenant governor back then. And I look at your background and your resume and I almost think, you know what? Attorney General almost seems like a better fit <laughs> for for you. Uh, a big law background, um, you know. Certainly, that's that's been uh, a core of you. Harvard Law, um, and and many other positions and and work in the law. So, running for Attorney General, tell me about this uh, this run for you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be running for Attorney General. I was a uh, Assistant Attorney General in the office and was able to see firsthand how much impact uh, the AG office can have on people's lives across the state. I was the chief of the healthcare division at the time that we were implementing Massachusetts health reform law. Um, so we worked really hard uh, during that time to make sure that everyone had access to high quality, affordable health care. Um, we stood up for consumers and workers uh, during that conversation. We're very concerned about racial disparities. I also brought some um, consumer protection lawsuits against some insurance companies that were taking advantage of Massachusetts residents all across uh, the Commonwealth during that really critical time. So uh, they were offering health insurance products that didn't really cover uh, the kinds of risks that people face. Um, and so they were excluding really important things from coverage and also lying uh, to consumers across the states. You imagine you sign up for what you think is just a low cost insurance uh, plan, and then you find out that you're not actually insured against risk when you have cancer or something like that, and mm. that devastates your, your family. And that's a good example of one of the ways that the AG office can really be effective uh, for people across the, the state. So I really enjoyed working in the office, seeing how much impact uh, that it could have. Um, and then I've also had the opportunity to see the other end of uh, the spectrum. I was in the White House under President Obama. I was senior advisor for jobs and competitiveness and really worked on uh, some of the economic challenges that we were facing in the wake of the Great Recession. Um, so as we were sort of clawing our way out of that uh, really big economic catastrophe, we wanted to rebuild the economy in a way that worked for everybody, that really sort of broadened our economic prosperity. I think that we've seen over the course of the last few decades, the rich really getting richer and the very rich getting a lot richer mm. and everybody else really struggling uh, to make ends meet. Um, and so we were focused on that economic policy. And then when I was, uh, when President Biden was elected, I was asked on day one to come into the Commerce Department uh, where I was acting general counsel of the Commerce Department. Um, and so I led a team of several hundred lawyers as we were sort of taking over uh, the government from uh, President Trump. Um, and so simultaneously, we were trying to clean up 
some of the mess that we'd inherited. So for example, all of the legal issues of the census uh, were my problem on day one. Um, but at the same time- That must've been fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, when, when I think about the Trump administration, there's a certain amount of cruelty to it, um, where they were trying to rip apart families, put walls between us and our neighbors. Uh, they're really an attack on our democracy. But there's also a lot of corruption and a lot of mismanagement. Um, and I was involved both in the transition from Bush to Obama and from Trump uh, to Biden. Um, and uh, what we inherited from the Trump administration was really shameful uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and so uh, the, the work of trying to rebuild uh, faith in our government, um, get our economy going again, uh, the Build Back Better agenda, I think uh, has a lot in it uh, that will help people all across the state, but certainly out here uh, in Berkshire County and in Pittsfield, I think that uh, you know a lot of uh, the infrastructure work is gonna make a really big difference uh, there's a lot of need out here for um, access to technology, to Wi-Fi, to broadband. There's a lot of need for transportation investments and education investments and getting jobs going. So I think there's a lot to be said uh, for the agenda that we launched out of the Biden administration. But at the same time, I think that Washington's broken um, at a fundamental level. And it's hard to think that the solutions to really big challenges that people face are going to come out of Washington. And I think it's one thing that you brought up, and I, I think it's a, a general theme uh, in this nation now and, and really around the world, is uh, the sort of corporate powers uh, that have become, <laughs> they've always been very, very powerful. Um, now with Citizens United and, and, uh, and all the policy that has followed, I think, from there um, in, in a lot of ways uh, over time. Um, it seems to me that it is the role of the attorney generals and not just in Massachusetts, but the attorney generals, attorneys general uh, across the country that, you know, they have that opportunity uh, to be able to find the wrongdoing, um, you know, whether it's uh, pharmaceutical companies, whether it's health insurance companies. Um, and, and I think, you know, for, for regular people, um, you know, the, the political side of things, okay, Republican, Democrat, in a lot of ways, there's a dynamic of the corporatization uh, against the people in a lot of ways. And I think the attorney general position is one that uh, has has some power uh, to be able to address this. And, and that's where you see some of these more high profile cases, a lot of them coming out of New York State, of course, Maura Healy has had her share, um, where it's been very high profile. And um, so, you know, what is the AG's role in regard to that? I mean, you mentioned it with the health insurance companies, but protecting the people against uh, the the corporations often that are that are uh, wronging them. Yeah, I think that there's a really important role for the attorney general um, to stand up for working people, to stand up for consumers, to stand up for civil rights. One of the things I really enjoyed about working there is as an, as an assistant attorney general was feeling like every day you were actually uh, interacting with consumers uh, who had uh, specific complaints and you know, we, had, uh, we had hotlines, we had mediation programs, we brought cases on behalf of workers and consumers. Um, and so you could really tangibly uh, touch people's lives and stand up for, um, uh, for, for people against um, unfair and deceptive trade practices uh, and violations of civil rights. And at the same time, I think as you're saying, um, the 
Attorneys general across the country have uh, played a really important structural role, particularly when they band together in these multi-state cases. Mm. Um, they can sort of punch above their weight. And I think over right. the last couple of decades, the AGs have sort of learned how to use that power um, to make a big dent on really important issues, taking on big banks, taking on insurance companies, taking on pharmaceutical companies um, when they are harming uh, consumers. And it used to be um, that I think AGs were reluctant uh, to take on really big defendants, um, partially because only a portion of the harm was in their state and partially because when you brought a consumer protection case against a big bank, for example, there were a huge number of lawyers on the other side. They could yeah. afford to, uh, right. to really uh, fight out the litigation in a way that would make it very hard for a single attorney general um, to have a credible threat of, uh, of litigation. When the AGs started to work together in these multi-state actions, that script flipped a little bit. Mm. And you could then go forward and say, look, you're not just taking on Massachusetts, you're taking on Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, California, and a whole bunch of like-minded states. And then all of a sudden, when we threaten to sue, um, they stand up and they take notice. And Massachusetts has played a really big part in those multi-state actions, not just against the Trump administration. I think Mora um, did a really effective job of using the office as a tool sure. for fighting back against an immoral and corrupt Trump administration, um, but also knowing uh, when it's important um, to take on a big challenge, like say uh, the Sacklers um, in the opioid sure. crisis. Um, mm -hmm. I was one of the lead attorneys um, in a large insurance um, bid rigging and price fixing case uh, that Massachusetts was one of the lead uh, offices on that led to a $175 million uh, settlement with a large insurance company uh, back in the mid, uh, you know, sort of the 2006 kind of a range, 2005. Um, and uh, so I think we've seen that that is a, a role that the AG can, can play. And I think it's a balance, right? There are times um, when we want to take on the really big cases um, and make sure that we're standing up um, for those really big issues. But I also think it's really important for us to focus here on Massachusetts, to focus on consumer protection, workers' rights, civil rights, um, and uh, make sure that we're uh, devoting our resources um, to Massachusetts problems. Mm. And I think, you know, I mean, we see that quite a bit because, I mean, these corporations are so powerful when the little guys and literally citizens uh, are attempting to try to make some change. It's incredible almost impossible because, you know, I mean, for, for instance, we have a cell tower uh, that Verizon put up in our neighbor, in a neighborhood in Pittsfield where uh, it's impacting people and they're trying to fight it. It's so hard because <laughs> they have an army of attorneys, of course, um, you know, and generally um, uh, an FCC that is, is basically with them um, in policy. So, <clears throat> so, you know, in that case, those are places where if if you know there's merit you know maybe the attorney general uh you know can can step in 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 cases like that i think that's absolutely right and i like the phrase that maura healy has used for the office the notion of the people's lawyer and i think that we've sort of shifted the focus of what an ag office is and should be from something i think people think a lot about it as a chief law enforcement officer and right. the sort of law and order approach 
Um, and I think that uh, shifting the focus to the notion that this is really about standing up uh, for consumers um, and making sure that everybody gets a fair share in this economy. Um, and I think that's a good example of uh, one of the things that we can do. We can also stand up on really big issues like climate change. Um, I think that this is one of the things that's going to determine what kind of a life our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren uh, live. And um, I think that we've seen how difficult it's going to be to make progress at the international level and even at the national level. You see Mitch McConnell, for example, and Joe Manchin blocking a lot of the sensible things that you'd like to see happen at a national level. Mm -hmm. and I think if you think about who's going to solve those problems, it's going to come from regional collaboration. It's going to come from state action. And I think all of us um, who are in uh, public service need to be thinking about how can we bring urgency to the fight against the climate crisis. So if you think about the AG office, the AG office has a lot of opportunities there um, for fighting against the climate crisis. There's the obvious ones, like uh, the AG is uh, someone who can sue polluters. Um, and there are times uh, when the AG office has done that really effectively and has also pushed back against uh, the federal government when they've been um, uh, disregarding environmental protections. Um, but there's also a lot of opportunities in clean energy. There are a lot of opportunities in overseeing utilities. There are a lot of opportunities to think about um, uh, racial justice as it relates to, uh, to environmental protection. So mm -hmm. we've seen that communities of color are more likely to uh, bear the brunt of uh, climate change. Um, and so racial justice in the environmental context is a really important thing for us to be thinking about from a civil rights perspective. And then if you're representing uh, agencies, um, you need to think about the climate impact of those agencies' actions where you're representing them, you're defending them, you want to make sure that the Commonwealth has good representation, but we want to make sure that over the long term, what's going to be in the best interest of everyone in the Commonwealth is if we have uh, climate as a priority. Um, and so we need to be counseling um, our agencies that they need to make that a priority as well. And it's um, it's so funny because I was you know, just briefly before uh, you came into the podcast, a friend asked me, so what is he running for? Uh, Attorney General. And I described it as, well, you know, it's sort of like the district attorney, except for all of Massachusetts, but it's not really that. And, and so, you know, how would you describe that uh, position um, as it relates? Because a lot of people know, okay, the DA is the chief prosecutor, that sort of thing in a county. But the attorney general, like you said, it has this sort of uh, broader role. Um, and it's not just that, you know what I'm saying? So, um, so how, you know, how would you describe that? Yeah, that one position? of the exciting things about the attorney general's office is that it does touch on so many different aspects of people's lives, um, whether that's uh, questions of racial justice, questions of uh, the climate crisis, consumer protection, standing up for reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, workers' rights, student loan debt, gun violence. We have an opportunity um, to use that office um, to do a number of things uh, that I think we, we all uh, want uh, some progress on. Um, and so I think that moving away from the notion of this as the Commonwealth's chief law enforcement officer, which to some extent it is, and certainly uh, the chief lawyer uh, for the Commonwealth, 
um, and moving towards, towards the notion that this is really about being a people's lawyer, about being a consumer advocate and a worker's advocate. Um, there are opportunities uh, to be involved in the conversation around criminal justice reform. I think that this is a time uh, where we need to be rethinking uh, what criminal justice means. Um, the murder of George Floyd and the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, they're just the most recent reminders that there are two justice systems in America. We imprison too many people for too long for doing too little. Race has too much to do with who ends up in the criminal justice system. So we do need to take on that set of challenges with some urgency. And I think that the attorney general can play a really big role um, in uh, using the bully pulpit um, as uh, to, to start pushing in the direction of sensible reforms to criminal justice, to prisoners' rights, to uh, policing issues. Um, so I think that uh, we need to be a major player in the conversation around criminal justice reform, um, but it is not primarily what the AG office does. A lot of the things that people think of uh, as the key kind of role of prosecutors are done by district attorneys. So district mm -hmm. attorneys tend to be the ones who do the prosecutions of, of murders and rapes and burglaries and drug offenses and those sorts of things. The AG does have criminal powers um, and uh, needs to use them in some contexts, um, but we, uh, we are also uh, one of the places where we can kind of set the agenda for that conversation. It's been a really exciting conversation over the last couple of years to see progressive prosecutors like uh, Rachel Rollins, for example, who is the Suffolk County District Attorney, is now the U.S. Attorney. Um, and, uh, you know, she's looked at uh, being innovative about how to think about uh, the discretion that prosecutors have um, in order to uh, try to rebalance um, a system that has led to enormous racial disparities. And I think overall, we as a country are incarcerating too many people. So if you look at uh, the United States relative to uh, some other affluent democracies, we incarcerate a much higher percentage of, of our population. There's a huge racial disparity there, but there also is just generally an over-incarceration problem. Um, and uh, you know, I think that we wanna shift our focus away from uh, sort of punitive measures um, to trying to uh, get at some of the underlying uh, structural challenges. So um, more emphasis on substance use uh, treatment. I know the opioid crisis has hit, uh, mm. you know, the, the, the Berkshires very, very hard as it has uh, the entire state. Um, you know, we need to be investing in the services and the treatment uh, for uh, people with substance use disorder. We need to be investing in mental health services. We need to be thinking about how to make sure that people have stable housing, stable jobs, those mm. sorts of things. We need to keep the community safe, of course. And yeah. We need to prosecute crimes um, when, uh, when people have, have violated the law. But we, we need to rethink uh, the way that we have sort of used the criminal justice system uh, as a blunt object um, mm. to deal with uh, some problems that may not be uh, primarily about law and order or about public safety. And, you know, talking to voters, uh, when you look at it, it was, it was, it's interesting because um, voters kind of uh, appreciate some of the legal issues, certainly the incarceration issues. But a lot of times when you have conversations, it leads back to what is affecting their life directly, <laughs> you know? And, and so that's why, you know, the AG position, of course, is a little bit different than, say, you know, a mayor or a governor or that sort of thing, or, or even a city councilor, clearly. 
However, I'm sure you're hearing it and because people are concerned. They go to the grocery store and they're spending a lot more on groceries and it's tough to make ends meet right now with an inflation. And also, are we ever going to get back to normal? Are my kids going to be wearing masks in school? Is, are we going to be able to move away from that finally? You know, that, that sort of thing. So what, so what are you hearing, you know, from people? I, I, I feel like people are kind of like frustrated. They're kind of like over it. Can we please just get back to normal maybe, and maybe like, let's get rid of some of this inflation. So, you know, how does that <laughs> impact you in, in your race where those issues are not necessarily first and foremost on what the AG does, but you gotta be hearing it. I think, I think there are definitely things that the AG does okay. and should, you know, I, I, one of the things I really enjoy about campaigning in a grassroots sense, um, you know, is, is that you go out to communities and uh, we've traveled to, um, to all 40 state senate districts and you know uh, at, least, at least recently by by zoom um, and uh, you know you hear about the challenges that people are facing the ag office also has lots of opportunities uh, to hear from folks through hotlines um, and to sort of uh, calibrate the caseload on the basis of what people uh, come to the office with as concerns and you do see some trends there um, in terms of things that people uh, can can uh, get help from the AG office on. So for instance, mm. uh, student loan debt is a major sure. uh, driver of um, you know of consumer protection problems in the Commonwealth. You see a lot of families delaying, um, having families delaying, having uh, buying a house. Um, and you also see senior citizens still carrying uh, student loan debt from 20 or 30 years uh, ago. And the AG can play a really aggressive role um, in taking on predatory lenders and fighting for uh, consumers when they're being mistreated in some of those arrangements. And I also think that we can uh, stand up for student loan forgiveness. I'm a proud alum of the Biden administration, but I'd love to see uh, much more uh, aggressiveness out of Biden um, in terms of forgiving student loan debt. And I, so I think the AG can play a really big role there. Um, I think the AG can play a really big uh, role with housing issues. So I hear a lot that people uh, have trouble uh, making ends meet either as a renter or um, as, as you know, paying a mortgage. Um, and the AG has a, has a lot of tools um, for uh, protecting consumers when they're dealing with banks in the mortgage context. Uh, certainly, um, right as we came out of the Great Recession, there was a very active uh, predatory lending uh, uh, focus within mm -hmm. the office, both sort of on the civil right side, looking at some of the ways that um, there are disparate impacts um, in the lending space, and also just uh, in terms of the unfair and deceptive trade practices uh, enforcement, we can stand up uh, for consumers, for borrowers, uh, and for renters and help in uh, some of those, those lending contexts. Um, and uh, we can help workers. So one of the things that we're hearing about a lot um, is wage theft um, mm. and some of the ways uh, that contractors um, hire subcontractors who then uh, misclassify workers, don't pay overtime, don't pay benefits, don't treat them as employees. Um, the AG has some powers um, to enforce uh, existing uh, fair labor laws um, and does so aggressively. Um, but I think there's a lot more that we can do on wage theft. And we also can call on uh, the legislature to expand the powers of the AG office um, to stand up for workers. So there's a piece of legislation mm -hmm. um, that's pending on Beacon Hill that I'd really like to see taken up 
um, that would give the AG greater power and give workers greater power yeah. when they're being mistreated in the employment context. Yeah. And of course, that's another uh, issue where um, it's kind of like divide and conquer, because what you have is, we know Amazon and uh, Wayfair and uh, Walmart, they can surely afford to pay at least $15 an hour. In fact, I think $15 an hour is, is low now, especially with the inflation. The wages just, have just not kept up um, at all uh, in, our, in our country as the costs have uh, continued to rise uh, where people are now compared to where they were in 1970. We all know, uh, you know that that's a huge dichotomy of where wages should be. Um, for the overall populace. Uh, but then you have this situation where you have the small business owners who are like, well, we're just making ends meet ourselves and so forth. So that issue always, <laughs> that's the same dynamic every time. The small business owners, like, you're going to crush us, you're going to crush us. Yeah, but if you give more money in the pockets to the people who are out there working for the Walmarts and the Home Depots, they'll be able to spend more money. At, you know, So um, it's just one of those things that um, it's they they you know, it's like the divide and conquer thing. So, um, and then it's difficult, although we've made progress on the wages. Um, but, you know, that, that's more of a commentary, less no, of a question. I think, <laughs> I, no, I think, I think you're entirely right. And one of the things I'm very enthusiastic about is the fair share amendment, um, because I think that one of the solutions yeah. to the challenge that you're mentioning is that we really do need the very wealthiest people um, in this society to, um, to pay a little bit more so that we can invest in broad-based uh, economic growth. So what we've seen over the last couple of decades is the top 1% getting a lot richer and the top one-tenth of 1% getting a lot richer. Um, and we do need to recalibrate uh, that. The fair share amendment, the idea is um, that we should have the very wealthy pay a little bit more. We should take that money and invest in the things that are going to allow us to have a, a broad-based growth. So basically, let's invest that in transportation. Let's invest that in education. And let's make sure that when you grow up in Pittsfield, um, you have economic opportunities. You have uh, great schools that, ha that have the resources to, um, to, to prepare you for the economy, but also that we have a transportation system um, mm -hmm. that works and that we sort of uh, build a, an infrastructure mm -hmm. around Wi-Fi and broadband and, and other sorts of things so that everybody can prosper in this economy. And then those folks will go to the small businesses and those th small businesses will thrive as yeah, well. Yeah, and basically, uh, fair share is basically just a modified uh, graduated income tax. It's it's not it's nothing that <laughs> dramatic. If, I, if, if it has, unless it's changed, it uh, was those who earn a million dollars or more at a million and one dollars, they just pay a higher uh, tax rate, um, which I, I believe that is the same. As yeah, that's no, that's exactly proposed. right. Okay. And, you know, you talked about about uh, the Amazons and the Walmarts of the world, we also, also should be concerned about the Ubers and the Lyfts of the world. And in particular, right now, we see some of these gig economy companies um, trying to get around um, the uh, paying workers uh, as employees, um, and they couldn't get this uh, uh, this reform or this change through the legislature, and so what they what they're trying to do is put a uh, a ballot initiative on the Massachusetts ballot, and they're going to pour tens of millions of dollars into advertising in order to try and convince people uh, that misclassifying workers, not giving them uh, the rights uh, that they would have as employees, um, is somehow going to be good for those workers. And it's 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 a, a cynical strategy um, because what they want to do 
um, is have this be the first step uh, in a national strategy that uh, misclassifies workers. And I, I really mm. think that as the economy is shifting, this is going to be like a key moment is whether these multi-billion dollar companies are going to be able uh, to change the uh, worker classification. For example, if you order something from Amazon, um, it, often it's an independent person who's dropping it off. And so Amazon doesn't have to have liability. Uh, they don't have to pay insurance. You know, they're able to uh, have this independent contractor do it, sometimes UPS also, uh, or, or USPS will also deliver, but, um, but it's a way for a big company to have a service provided to them with very little liability or, or cost, you know, those, those kinds of things. Of course, that would be another, I think that'd be a good issue for the attorney general, uh, either to focus on as well, because, you know, these, these people, and they're, they're out there doing a, a service for Amazon, Amazon isn't taking any of the risk uh, in that in uh, a lot of ways, you know, that's just one example. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. So, I mean, I think that the AG should be a workers champion. Um, and some of that is just implementing uh, the laws and the powers that we have in the Fair Labor uh, Bureau. But some of that is also being an advocate um, and helping to set the conversation that we really should be protecting workers, that wages should be rising, that benefits should uh, cover people. And, you know, people should be able to, if you work really hard, you should be able to make ends meet. And sometimes yeah. in this economy, yeah. it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And we I, yeah, need it, more people. There, there is a basic. If yeah. you work a job for 40 hours a week, as, as the society asks you to do, you should be able to have a place to live. <laughs> you should be able to buy food uh, to eat um, and maybe even support a family. And, um, and again, that's how things have, it used to be way back in the day, long before I was ever working, you know, you could have one uh, person working and support a family of, of two or three kids. That's totally impossible now, completely yep. impossible, um, certainly in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's you know. right. And, you know, and the healthcare is also a big part of that. I was, you know, as I mentioned, I was the first chief of the healthcare division. And I think healthcare ends up being one of these things uh, that make it really hard for people to make ends meet. I'm a big advocate for uh, Medicare for all, but in any event, we ought to be um, working to make sure that insurance companies don't take advantage of uh, consumers, that pharmaceutical companies don't overcharge uh, consumers, that they're making fair representations. You know, insulin shouldn't cost uh, what it costs. Yeah. Um, we've seen some really bad examples of uh, pharmaceutical companies jacking up prices well beyond what they needed um, in order to recoup their R&D investments. And we've seen, you know, some extreme examples, uh, but like the Sackler family, uh, where sure. the misrepresentations had really devastating consequences. Um, you think about who's going to stand up uh, for consumers on those issues. And I really think it is the people's lawyer, it really is the AG. Um, and so I think healthcare is one of the places uh, where you need to have uh, you know, a, a zealous advocate in there and somebody who understands the system. It's a very complicated system. Um, and, you know, those costs are rising and rising and rising. And we need to understand uh, the antitrust laws um, and some of the ways that uh, concentration of market power, uh, you know, lead to those rising prices. But at the end of the day, you should be able, um, if you have health insurance, uh, to afford uh, to get sick. And if somebody in your family gets sick, uh, that should not lead you to the brink uh, of bankruptcy. And too often now, um, if somebody in your family gets sick with COVID or anything else, um, uh, it it has really devastating consequences for, for families. And so I think the AG can play a really big role in that. And I've been working on that issue for a long time. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about yourself. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you, know you come in, you, we, of course, talk a lot of uh, about the issues and, and politics and the rest, but uh, you're from yeah, Massachusetts. So I grew up originally. in Worcester County. Uh, my parents were pediatricians. So uh, my dad was working at St. Vincent's Hospital in Worcester, and my mom was working at Children's in Boston. And so they. What's uh, it like chose, being the kid of two pediatricians? You know, you don't get away with anything. You know, <laughs> if, you, if you complain about a stomach ache, they ask you a bunch <laughs> of questions, and then they're like, nah, I go to school. My, I'm just, I'm just going to go to school. Forget about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. My parents were definitely in the no whiner school of medicine. We didn't get away with anything. But, uh, but no, it was great. And, you know, I grew up seeing them. They were very interested um, in, in public health issues. My mom worked with a lot of uh, kids who had, uh, had special needs um, and making sure that they uh, were getting the services that they need. My dad has worked a lot uh, on kids uh, experiencing poverty, um, on lead poisoning, on immunization, on, you know, so um, they were very interested in some of the, the social aspects um, and some of the anti-poverty aspects of that. And so anti-poverty work has been a big part of what I've done throughout my career. I uh, was a legal aid lawyer when I was at Harvard Law School. I ran a, a nonprofit that focused on, on child protection in the Philippines with some of the world's poorest uh, children. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I founded a, a, an organization at, at Harvard that focuses on um, some of the uh, access to medicines issues uh, that, that some of the world's populations uh, face. I ran something called the Poverty Lab at MIT, uh, JPL North America, that uses evidence-based policy uh, to fight poverty. Um, so th this issue of poverty and inequality has really kind of run through, uh, through my career. Um, I, um, you know, I've, I've been a lawyer for about 20 years. Um, I was in the AG office. I was in the Obama administration and in the Biden administration. And then I've run a, a series of, of nonprofits. Um, so I founded a nonprofit organization focused on voting rights uh, called the Voter Protection Corps. Been very interested for a number of years um, in the kinds of challenges to our democracy that we're seeing today, uh, voter suppression um, and uh, some of the obstacles that voters face uh, when they're trying to register and vote and have their votes count. Um, so I've been very interested in, in that set of issues. And I've also been very interested in some of the consumer protection issues in the digital economy. So mm. consumer protection looks a lot different in uh, 21st century economy with uh, large uh, tech companies than it did uh, 20 or 25 years ago. And we do need um, our thinking on consumer protection to include those kinds of digital challenges, privacy and cybersecurity, disinformation online, that kind of thing. So uh, that was some of the work that I was doing um, in the Commerce Department in the White House. Um, and I've uh, founded and run a, uh, a consumer protection nonprofit about digital issues over the last couple of years as hmm. well. That's, I mean, that must be, uh, you must have learned a great deal during that process because it, it just changes I mean, the information, uh, you know, obviously is instantaneous <laughs> and uh, there's so many different platforms um, and so much. And, you know, the questions about misinformation, well, what is misinformation, you know, and, and who's providing the misinformation? Um, th this has been a, a brave new world in a lot of ways, uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what is going on in this world? It's, it's, it's I, I think the average person sometimes uh, 
you know, just doesn't know who to trust uh, nowadays. It's uh, just very difficult. There's a, there's a fair amount of Wild West out there. I mean, I think that, you know, digital transformation, the, the, the digital revolution has transformed our every aspect of our economy over the last 30 or so years. Um, and with each of those uh, transformations, there are both lots of opportunities and lots of challenges. So if you think about healthcare, um, there's an enormous um, uh, possibility that comes with personalized medicine, right? So I uh, use a Fitbit, it monitors uh, my movements, um, it gives an enormous amount of data um, that could be used um, to do chronic disease management, some of the uh, health uh, conditions that are you know, devastating across a number of communities, whether that's obesity or diabetes, mental health challenges, these sorts of things, we can be much more uh, sophisticated in, uh, in treating those conditions um, and getting ahead of preventative medicine. There's also now real opportunities for personalized medicine. You can see what they're doing with, uh, with some of the genetic research and some of the super blood. Mm. It's very personalized. Um, and so that, uh, that data, um, is has a ton of transformational potential. At the same time, um, if you uh, create all of these data and then they're available yeah. um, and they can be used um, in ways that are not in your best interest, you have to be concerned about the cybersecurity risk. You got to be concerned about the privacy risk. You got to be concerned about how you allow um, for greater access um, to the data um, but in a way um, that is really uh, in, in favor of the consumers or the patients. The same things happen in, in education, right? So if you think about um, how you actually uh, teach uh, kids and how they learn or adult learners, um, the more you can know about what, uh, 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 what you know and you don't know, the more you can target the learning at the individual learner's mm -hmm. level. Um, so sometimes you've got a classroom and some of the kids are totally lost and some of the kids are totally bored and then some of the kids are right there in the middle. Um, that's really inefficient. And one of the things that we've learned about education is that the more you can kind of tailor uh, the education to where the individual student is, um, is in their learning trajectory, the better, the more effective that can be. So there's lots of transformational possibilities to this sort of personalized learning, but you got to make sure that it's done in a way that actually protects kids mm -hmm. because kids' um, information online is often misused. Um, and so in every aspect of this, there's sort of a, a, a transformational possibility and there's a challenge uh, that you need to protect. And so you want to figure out how to do the consumer protection issues in a way uh, that still maximizes the benefit um, for uh, you know, the kids or the patients, um, but, um, but that also keeps them safe and makes sure that, uh, you know, that, that the business models of the um, companies that are using the, the data um, doesn't turn into, you know, your Cambridge Analytica right. or some of yeah. these data end up in the hands of Russians and Chinese right. uh, adversaries. Yeah, I think so. people generally have been really, up until a certain point, really okay with basically sharing a lot of information, especially if it sort of tailors their experience online and that sort of thing. I think where you start to see people starting to push back, and it makes sense, is when it starts to impact their abilities like you know for example you know whether you're for them or against them a vaccine mandate would impact someone uh whether or not they can go to a grocery store potentially or or a movie theater or that sort of thing so um so i think that's those are the kinds of things where it's like okay 
well, if I'm just living my life and I can go about my life, okay, then take my data. <laughs> but if you're using it <clears throat> in order to in, impede me on, on my freedom, then that's where you're going to see the, the pushback naturally. Yeah, I think we need to have clearer rules. I think that Congress needs to set a baseline. When I was in the Obama administration, we called for something called a Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights um, that would allow for there to be a baseline of rules um, that everybody can understand um, to protect consumers. And that would be better for businesses too, because what ends up happening now um, is that the rights that you have uh, differ depending on the kind of data, where you are. There's a lot of differences from state to state. Um, and that ends up being really hard uh, for businesses because uh, it's very hard for them to know what the rules are and play by those rules. The people who, or the companies that do the best job of playing by those rules are at a strategic disadvantage against some of the more unscrupulous sure. players. Sure. And so from a business perspective, um, it's actually really harmful to have a patchwork of rules. But from a consumer perspective, it's really bad because what ends up happening is you see these, uh, you know, these jargon-filled privacy policies. Everybody just clicks through I know. them. Yep. Nobody <laughs> knows what's on, you know, paragraph ten. I think I think someone did dense... a study that if people were to read all that, it would literally take years of their life. <laughs> yeah, and so, but we we have <laughs> this weeks, fiction anyway. that people are reading and understanding those things, and that that's changing your relationship with the company that is then using your data and selling it to third parties, and then it gets aggregated and. Uh, and, and used in ways that you can't control. And that's not good for anybody. And so we need, um, we need uh, some baseline rules. Um, the best thing would be for Congress to do that. Congress is broken. Um, and so we need states to step into that void. And I'd love to see Massachusetts um, step up and put in place um, some greater consumer protections for consumers online. The AG office has been a real leader um, in those kinds of protections. Um, but Massachusetts um, needs to uh, step up and put in place better rules um, of the road so that uh, everybody understands what the rights and responsibilities are and you're not putting too much weight on those uh, click-throughs. Yes, I agree. I don't know what I just agreed to, but I'd agree. That's not the, yeah. that's not a way to be running this. And so, you know, I'd love to see the legislature take that up, but I think that uh, the AG office in the meantime can do a lot to protect people. Online. Yeah. I, I, I look at that position as like the sort of uh, independent body and, and, and not that it's devoid of politics. Of course it's, it's party politics on how the attorney general is, is chosen for sure. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of its own entity that has uh, this this extra power in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, some you're able to do things that a governor can't do. <laughs> governor can do a lot of things you can't do as an attorney general, of course. But um, but I think this banding together, um, you know, it, it, it's shown that uh, you know across states uh, and we you can change policy um, with the power of the attorney general. So I I, I really feel like. You know, people don't recognize how important this position. I think you know certainly more Healy has brought um, you know some more um, exposure to that for sure. Um, you know, a little bit more national exposure. Uh, but uh, but I can tell you that I think you know people really need to pay attention uh, to this race and to understand okay, like what does Massachusetts want to be on the national scale? Um, you know, when it, when you look at these big big issues, um, you know economic issues like we talked about. And I know, like you said, I want to stick to Massachusetts, right? This is, it's, it's about the Massachusetts people, but you do have that, uh, that national uh, platform as well. 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And hopefully we can get a Democratic governor in there and hand in hand, a Democratic governor um, and a Democratic AG. I think that there's a lot that we're going to be able to do on these really big issues. So uh, Quentin Palfrey, what does the campaign look like? Uh, you know, what what is the, the plan, um, the strategy? I don't want you to give away all your secrets, but no, there's no um, secret to you know. this. It's about uh, it's about the <laughs> grassroots. So yeah. we want to build a, a politics campaign. actually isn't that complicated. Campaigning isn't that complicated. I shouldn't say no, that's it's, right. it's hard, but it's it's uh, it's not easy. Uh, but certainly it's not complicated. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you know, I grew up in Worcester County and, um, you know, I think that there's something in common with a lot of the parts of the state that are outside of the greater Boston area, which is that uh, people feel, I think rightly, that um, the Beacon Hill um, often doesn't pay attention to the rest of the state. And so one of the things I want to do as a candidate, but also as an attorney general, is make sure that we are building a grassroots campaign all across the state. So it's really important to me to spend some time in Berkshire County, we're out here in Pittsfield today, um, and in you know in all, all of the communities across uh, the Commonwealth to build a statewide campaign to respect and empower and include people. Um, and that's, I think, where, uh, where you get the energy for the campaign. I was the 2018 Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor, as you mentioned, and we had the opportunity in that campaign to really build a grassroots network across the state and so quite simply, my plan um, for uh, campaigning for the AG office is really to, um, to, to reconnect uh, with those folks, to build up a grassroots network all across the state, spend a lot of time out here in Berkshire County and uh, in all of the communities across uh, Massachusetts and give a voice uh, to those folks um, and hopefully uh, ask for uh, support from, from all across the state. And uh, you know, I think that's the way that best, the best campaigns are run. And as I uh, mentioned in the conversation with my good friend, <clears throat> Paul Mark, who has a, a massive district and now running for state Senate in a massive district uh, geographically, you know, uh, when you're running across the state, you can't knock on all the doors. <laughs> you just can't do that. So, um, you know, so, so what are some of the ways uh, that the actual tactical uh, ways that you are looking to reach more people um, in, in, you know, and, and I, for me, you know, in their comfort zone is always the best way. It's not easy, <laughs> but um, but you know, tell me about some of the the ways that you're you're actually uh, meeting with people. I I think that what we've learned about campaigns is that neighbor to neighbor engagement is the best. Um, and so the more that you can talk to individual voters, the more that you can empower um, supporters in neighborhoods to talk to their neighbors, the better that it works. So right now we are very focused on these caucuses. Um, they're Democrat caucuses happening all across the state, and we're talking um, to folks in Democratic town committees and in local um, uh, local organizations um, and and really trying to go community to community um, as we move forward we'll do more house parties um, we'll ask uh, supporters to ask their neighbors uh, to come Love meet those. with us um, I, see and, we, we uh, used to call them we used to call them coffees yeah you know, because, exactly you know they're coffees but you know people that the, the cool kids are calling them house parties these days because yeah. maybe, maybe not everybody likes coffee, but yeah, um, but you know, but I, those those are my and a, uh, old mentor of mine, Jimmy Roberto, the former mayor of Pittsfield. He said, "Well, if there's one thing you could do uh, every single day, and you only had you know 30 days to do it, do a house party every day, you know, because uh, that reach uh, is 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 very very powerful. Um, and yeah, you can knock on doors, but like that, there's a certain there's a certain energy that comes." 
from that atmosphere. And I it's, think that's it's really right. I think, I think that we've all seen campaigns that focus on robo calling and <laughs> mass emails and TV as the kind of core of the campaign. And we've seen campaigns that actually get out into communities where people feel like the campaign is about more than just the candidate and is a reflection of our kind of shared values. And you want to be the kind of campaign that people get invested in. And I think that what we've seen, I like evidence, I like data. And one of the things that you see in the campaign data is that what actually works um, is when somebody you know speaks up for a candidate that they like. Um, and mm -hmm. if you hear from somebody in your community and your family about a candidate, uh, you're much more likely uh, to support that candidate. And so what you mm -hmm. want to do, and now we're calling it relational organizing, but basically what you want is for people to get invested in the campaign because they feel like your ideas are, are uh, valuable ones um, for, for dealing, as you say, exactly with the, the kinds of issues that you care about in your own life. And then you say, look, check out this candidate. Um, and, uh, and then you get an opportunity yeah. to meet their friends and their neighbors. And that's the way you do it. And so, sure, we do some, some door knocking and we certainly do a lot of phone calls and texting and emailing. Um, of individual voters. We do some social media kinds of things. Sure. Um, but the best thing is if you can meet com people in their communities. And yeah. so we're, we're working really hard to do that. Well, sounds like a good strategy. And, uh, you know, they love to come up with these names, <laughs> relational, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It's like, Meeting people. Yeah, talking, exactly. Talking Meeting people, people and having people talk to people they know, right? That's that's what actually works. So. It, it absolutely does. So Quentin Palfrey, a great pleasure. Thank you for stopping yeah, by. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's um, so nice to be back in Pittsfield. Enjoy Pittsfield, you know, get some lunch downtown and uh, and uh, have a great time at the caucus and, um, and say hi to everybody. Yeah, thanks so much, John. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.